I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Thank you, Lewis. That was a reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, you may be surprised by the content of the passage, and you may be wondering, why is this in the Bible? I hope by at least not too far into the message today, I'll be able to answer at least that question for you. Uh, But Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're in this series called Life Under the Sun, and looking at the book of Ecclesiastes and walking through these 12 chapters between now and Palm Sunday. And uh, today we'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When my wife Wendy was uh, younger, a teenager actually, her mom had planned a trip to take she and her brother to Florida. They were living in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the time. And so it was a pretty big trip. And so they went down to the local AAA office. This was before the day of GPSs and everything else that you would use today to make these trips. So they went down to the AAA office. And, uh, and they, her mom uh, went to the desk and said, you know, we are going to Disney World. Can, uh, you know, do you have some maps? We're going to drive there. Can we get to Disney World? And she said, oh, yeah, no problem. And the, uh, the young lady went back and came back and gave, um, gave Wendy's mom a map of California. And she said, oh, no, 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 okay, you must misunderstood. We're going to go to Disney World. Uh, Disney World is in Florida. Disneyland is in California. And we're going to go to Disney World, so we need, we're going to Florida. And she said, oh, I'm sorry, no problem. She went back behind the desk again. She brought back and gave her a map of Florida. And she said, this is wonderful, this is great, this will be very helpful when we get to Florida. But between here and Florida, there's a lot of states. Can I have those maps too? 
And the girl went back behind the desk, and on the wall behind the desk was a big map of the United States. And she stood there staring at the map. And she stood there staring for an inordinate amount of time, came back and threw a bunch of maps on the counter in front of Wendy's mom and said, here, take what you want. I don't know where Florida is. (laughs) True story. Worked at a AAA office. Yes. Whenever you're going someplace, it's nice to talk to someone who's been there before, right? I mean, if you've gone someplace, you planned a trip somewhere, it's nice to be able to talk to someone who's been there before to get some insight, to get some advice, where to go, where not to go, right? A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, in a town in New Hampshire that I had never been there before, and I was looking for a place to eat, and, you know, so I'm trying to find a place to eat. So I did what maybe some of you would do, right? I took out my phone, I opened up my Yelp app. And I, you know, put in restaurants, location, and up comes this list of restaurants and all these reviews, right? You know, 20 people went here, and here's what they had to say. They have good appetizers. They don't have good. They're good on price. Good. And I was able, I, I found a restaurant, had a great meal, and enjoyed it all by looking at what other people had said about it. And it's helpful, right, to talk to people who have gone where you're planning on going, who have been where you're planning on being, and you get advice, you get insight, right? I think about this, uh, another example of this comes up, when people come to the Boston area, like my friends are from other parts of the country, and they want to see Boston, and this is the only time I actually go and see Boston, is when someone comes from their area, and they go, oh, we want to see the city, and I'm like, great, let me show you. We follow this red line, and we just... You know, if, if you're driving into town, right, and you're driving down in the city, and here's what happens, you're driving down, if you go in, driving down 93, and you're going over the Bunker Hill Memorial Bridge, and you look off to the left, and all of a sudden, they see this, this building over there, and say, hey, what's that? And you say, oh, that's the, you know, Bunker Hill Memorial, and it's on Bunker Hill, but the battle is actually on Breed's Hill, and, and, and you know, and that's, they put that memorial up to, for, the, for the battle and everything. Say, so can you climb it? And I don't know what your response is, but mine is, yes, but we're not going to. (laughs) Because I have climbed it. And it's 200 and some odd whatever steps to the top, and there's these little tiny windows for you to look out and basically just look at the bridge. And I'm like, so it's it's not worth the time. We're not going to climb. We save you the time, save you the energy. You know, we can go look at the museum. Maybe you feel differently about the Bunker Hill Memorial, but that's the way I feel about it. And, and But it's nice to know someone who's been there before, right? You go on vacation, you go someplace, and someone could say, hey, go there, don't go there, do this, don't do this, buy this, don't buy that. It's always helpful to talk to someone who's been there before. It can save you time, save you energy, save you money, all that kinds of stuff. I really believe that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is in the Bible for. The more I get into this book and the more I read it in the last couple weeks and months and and read it over and over again, I start to think that this is the wisdom. This is why God put it in the Bible. Because basically, the reason it's in here is to say, look, if you're living on this earth, you're going to be looking for purpose and meaning. Everyone that lives at some point is going to look around and say, what is all this for? Whether you're living in the 21st century or whether you're living 100, 1,000, or 2,000, or 3,000 years ago, you're on this earth, you're going to look around and say, what's the point of it all? What's the purpose? 
What's it all for? And you're probably going to go down a few paths as you look for meaning. And we might think there's hundreds. There's really not. If you look at the course of humanity, there's just a few paths that people often follow to pursue meaning and purpose. And I really believe God put the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, in the Word of God, to say, look, here's a few paths you're going to be tempted to go down. Let me tell you, I've been there. I've done it. Here's the triptych. Here's the Yelp. Here's the review. Here's the answer. Here, I've climbed it. Here's the the view from the window. And that's really what the book of Ecclesiastes is. Look, if you're going to pursue meaning and purpose, maybe you'll do it through work. Maybe you'll do it through money. Maybe you'll do it through pleasure. Maybe you'll do it through any of these venues. Let me tell you, the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, maybe King Solomon, uh, likely King Solomon could have been or could have been another writer. We don't know for sure. He doesn't identify himself. But the writer is ultimately saying, look, I've been there. I've done it. And here's what I found out. Let me tell you, let me save you the trouble of walking down this particular road because I'll tell you what you're going to find at the end of it. And he starts in chapter 2, verse uh, 1 through 11, he really starts to talk about pleasure. And he's talking about, look, some people will look around and say, hey, I like having fun. I like having a good time. That seems to be really enjoyable, you know, in my life. And maybe that is what life is all about. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he puts forth this hypothesis, really, and he says, I'm going to test it. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Test who? He means test meaning and purpose and life. Test it all. And he says, I'm going to try the road of pleasure to find out what is good. And maybe... You might not admit that you've tried this road, or maybe you would, but I can guarantee you there are plenty of people in the world that we live in that are trying this road. And they're looking at it and they say, look, it's all about happiness. It's all about pleasure. It's all about what I taste, touch, feel, see, hear around me. And so he kind of gives away his, his, the end before he goes through the whole thing. But he says, but that also proved to be meaningless. He says, laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Look, at the end of the day, you haven't gained anything. So I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. And folly is just a word, the best we can translate it, just folly, it's it's senseless pleasure, right? So, you know, if I'm thinking through our society, I think, you know, 30, 40 years ago, this was like the Three Stooges, right? Or if you're up on New Year's Eve, you're watching the Three Stooges, you're just like, my son loves the Three Stooges, right? But it's a senseless pleasure, right? There's, There's no point to it. There's barely a plot, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, it was Beavis and Butthead, right? I don't know what it is now, but it's this senseless, no point, folly place. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try laughter. I'm going to try pleasure. I'm going to try wine. And this, even with wine, it's interesting. He said, I tried cheering myself with wine, embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. So he wasn't talking about, look, I'm going to be in a drunken stupor all the time. He's not talking about that. He's just like, look, I'm going to try the pleasures of this world. I want to see if wine and the things that this world and pleasure and laughter can cheer me. I want to see if there can be meaning and that can provide purpose in the midst of all these things. And I want to see what was worthwhile under the sun. Then he goes on and he says this. He says, I undertook great projects. He said, look, maybe some people look for pleasure in building houses, planting vineyards, making gardens and parks. And some people, maybe that's your thing, right? The pleasure you get in the world, maybe you like to plant a garden, Maybe you like to see things grow. Maybe you're into interior decorating or the outside of your house and it makes you really feel good when things are in order, when things look good on the outside, when things look good on the inside. And he said, look, I tried it. That's just one house. I built houses. 
Not just a garden in my backyard. I built vineyards and gardens and parks. I tried to find places. I, I, I sought these things out. Bend down that road. And then he goes on and he says, he amassed great wealth. The next, can you go to the next slide, John? I bought female and male sl- slaves. They were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. I amassed silver and gold. In other words, I had wealth. I had wealth. I had money. Maybe you think it's money that will bring you pleasure. He said, I have money. And then he goes on. He said, I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings. I acquired men and women singers and had a harem. It was, I had sex. I had all the sex you could possibly want. Some people think that's the road to pleasure. He said, I tried that road. I became far greater than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I had fame. Tried it all. And he kind of sums it up. And he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. This is the end of it. You go down that road, you spend your life there. Let me just tell you, this is what's at the end of the road. If you're looking for meaning, you're not going to find it there. Meaningless. He says it's a chasing after the wind. It's like you're trying to lasso and catch the wind. He says, you could try it. You, you, and no doubt people will try it. No doubt people throughout history have tried it. No doubt there are people in our world and probably sitting in these chairs today who are trying that route. That pleasure is the route to meaning. And the teacher is just saying, God is telling us through his word, you can try it. But if you're going to look for meaning and purpose there, you're going to find that it's going to whack it. And maybe you think, well, that was 2,000, 3,000 years ago. You know, things have changed since then. You know, he couldn't find pleasure. That's fine. That was then, but this is now. And maybe you think, well, I'm different. You know, for me, I really find meaning in these things, and it really does give me purpose, and it really does bring meaning to my life, and I'm different. You know, we all think that, right? The billions of people that lived on the planet, and it didn't work for them, but it's going to work for me. And, and, And we sometimes think that, and we try that, right? But we don't have to look to Ecclesiastes, because I I found it interesting this week as I just started doing some research. It's not hard to find people in our world today that have said some things that sound a lot like what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Some people that have reached the pinnacle of their field. Some people that have reached what we would call the top in this life. You know, because that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Look, I've got the king you know, I've been there. I've had it all. I've been at the pinnacle, and here's what I found. But there's people in our world that have said the same thing. So if you look at the sports world, right? You look at the sports world, and many would say uh, someone like Tom Brady, quarterback of the New England Patriots, world champion, three Super Bowls, supermodel wife, money, fame, everything at the top of his game. And there's many kids that'll grow up and they'll say, man, that's it. If I can get there, that's the goal. I mean, that would be it. That would, you'd have it all. They say, well, maybe I can't be Tom Brady, but maybe I can win just one Super Bowl, or maybe I can, you know, I could do... Many kids grow up thinking, that's the pinnacle. If you have that, you couldn't possibly have any trouble. You couldn't possibly have any problems. That's what it's all about. Tom Brady, in a 60 Minutes interview after his third Super Bowl win, which was like 10 years ago, believe it or not. It's a question. That's a discussion for another day. Um... But he said this after his third Super Bowl win. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. Tom says, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, 
I think, uh, me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. When the interviewer asked, what's the answer? Brady could only say, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. And here's this guy, top of his head, just won his third Super Bowl. The world knows his name. Advertisers knocking down his door. All the money he wants, top of his career. And he said, look, I've been there. I'm there. I'm looking through the window. And it's not providing the meaning that I thought it would. It's not answering the question. I feel like there's got to be, it's empty. It's meaningless. Maybe sports aren't your thing. Uh, Maybe you're into art or writing. One of the more famous writers uh, of our country uh, in our day, uh, well, 20th century anyway, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was kind of unique because a lot of times with writers and artists, if you notice, they don't get famous until after they die, right? I mean, I mean, it's not until after they die that people are like, well, this guy was great, which is really tough for artists, right? I mean, because, you know, it's not until after they die that their art really becomes valuable. But Ernest Hemingway was different. He became famous in his lifetime. At 25 years old, he was sipping champagne in Paris. He was going on African safaris. He was going on game hunts to hunt grizzly bears in the American Northwest. He was living in Key West. He was li- everyone knew him. He was, he was famous, and he was successful in the field of writing. 61 years old, he took his own life. Took his own life and left one simple note that I can't read in a church, but it essentially said, life is one meaningless thing after another. Essentially said, look, I've been there, and life is just one meaningless thing after another. Maybe that's not your realm. Another realm that is uh, in our world today that is elevated is this fashion industry or, or models. You know, many people look at, we can't even call them models anymore. We have to have this category called supermodels, right? And there's this elite category. You can't just be a model. You've got to be a supermodel. And many young girls grow up and looking at this industry and say, well, that's the pinnacle. That's what you've got to reach. You know, many young girls will grow up with this false image of saying, look, if you can, you can reach there, that's the pinnacle of beauty. That's the pinnacle of success, uh, Cameron Russell, who was in this category of supermodel, she said in a, a TED Talk, uh, she said this. She said, people ask what it's like to be a model. And I think the answer that they're looking for is, if you're a little bit skinnier and have, sk- and have shiny hair, you will be so happy and fabulous. And when we're backstage, we give an answer that maybe makes it seem like that. We say things like, It's really amazing to travel. And it's amazing to work with really creative and inspiring people. And those things are true. But they're only one half of the story. Because the thing we never say on camera, the thing that I have never said on camera, is I am insecure. And I am insecure because I have to think about what I look like every day. And if you are ever wondering... If I have thinner thighs and shinier hair, will I be happier? You just need to meet a group of models because they have the thinnest thighs and the shiniest hair and the coolest clothes and they're the most physically insecure women probably on the planet. 
And here's someone who reached this top of her field, and many, she would be lifted up by her society, and she's saying, it's not what I thought it would be. It doesn't give meaning. Another one of these women that reached that category of supermodel, Kylie Basuti, some of you may have heard of her, because she reached this plateau and reached this level of supermodel, and then she left it because of her Christian faith. She reached this pinnacle of, of success and the society recognized her as this supermodel and she said, this is not pleasing to Jesus and she walked away from it, not afterwards, but really when she was on the upswing. And Kylie says this, she says, I thought that that was going to make me happy, getting all the attention in the world, going to the parties, walking on the runways and it wasn't. It was all empty. It was all selfish And really, when it comes down to it, the only thing that's going to make you happy is fulfillment in your faith and love for other people. It's all about that. And here's this young woman just on the crest of taking off just, just, I mean, she just really has started a career. The world is saying, you know, you, you're, you're it. This is it. And she says, I'm walking away because this isn't what Christ would want. This isn't honoring to my Lord. This isn't honoring to my husband. And she walked away from it. Because many people, they cut this. We, we, we don't believe it, though. But they tell us, I've been there. I've seen the view. And it's not what you think it's going to be. It doesn't bring the meaning and the purpose. In the last couple of weeks... It's been in the news, uh, this actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? They found dead in his uh, Manhattan apartment. And I didn't know much about Philip Seymour Hoffman. I actually had seen a movie with him in it, but I didn't realize that was his name. If you've seen the movie Doubt, which is a, a really good movie that, that he was in um, about a scandal in, the, scandal in the Catholic Church and really brings that out. And, and he was great acting in it. And I didn't know really anything about him, so I read some of the stories this past week that were written about him. And he seemed like a really nice guy. See, my, he, was, he was this guy who lived in Manhattan and would hang out at the parks with his kids and he would, he would uh, go to coffee shops and he didn't distance himself from people. And he had reached, he had an Oscar, he had reached this, this, this amount of success in his life and many people would say, he's done it, he's reached this pinnacle of success. And yet, 48 hours before he died, someone had asked him, they were in an airport and they knew they recognized him but they didn't know who he was. And someone had yelled out, hey, who are you? And Philip Seymour Hoffman's response was, I'm a heroin addict. And two days later, he was found in his apartment in Manhattan with a needle in his arm being carried out on a stretcher. And here's this guy. But the world says you've reached the pinnacle of success. And he's living his life for the next high, the next pleasure. And there's this road that many people will follow. And they think it's going to lead to a place of meaning and significance. You know why they think it? Because they've been told it will. Because many of us who have grown up, especially in the Western world, have been told it's all about your personal happiness. The best you can hope for is to be happy. The best you can hope for is to get some happiness while you're living this life under the sun. And we live trying to find that happiness And we don't find it in one thing, so we look in another and another and another. And our world is full of choices that we think are going to make us happy. In fact, one guy, one author wrote a book about all the choices. His name's Greg Easterbrook. He wrote a book, I love this title, called The Progress Paradox. And this is a subtitle. 
how life gets better while people feel worse. And that's so true, right? And he says this. He, he proves that in his book, what he lays out is that we have more of almost everything today except happiness. In fact, the more we have, the unhappier we are because we know we'll never be able to get all the things that we want. Barry Schwartz, uh, another uh, psychologist, and he said it this way. He said, the dogma of all Western industrial societies runs like this. If we're interested in maximizing the welfare of our citizens, the way to do that is to maximize individual freedom, to maximize choice. The more choice and freedom people have, the happier, the better welfare they'll be. And he goes on to say the only problem is it's just not true. It's just not true. We follow this like it's true. Like, yeah, we'll have more choices. We'll have more options. 100 channels is good, so 200 is better, and 300 is better, and 500 is better. And it'll bring more happiness. Except that it doesn't. It just doesn't. Barry Schwartz gives this great example. He says, uh, he went into a store to buy a pair of jeans. And he hadn't bought jeans in a number of years. So he goes into the store, and the guy says, well, what do you want? Skinny jeans? You want boot cut? You want, you want acid wash jeans? You want, uh, you know, and he goes through like a hundred different kinds of jeans. And like five minutes into the conversation, Barry says, I want the kind of jeans that used to be the only kind of jeans. <laughs> and after like three hours of trying on jeans, Barry says this, I walked out of the store with the best fitting jeans I've ever had in my life but I felt worse. But I felt worse. Right? He had the best fitting jeans he ever had in his life, but he felt worse. Why? Because of all the ones he didn't have. Because of all the ones he said no to. Because of everything he knew now that was out there that he didn't have. And we live under this illusion that more choice is better and more freedom and all of this. And somewhere out there, there's going to be something that's going to make us happy, except that it doesn't. Except that it doesn't. And so what is it about pleasure? What do we do with pleasure? Are we saying that pleasure and happiness is just something evil from the devil? And then, you know, good Christians, you don't have to worry about pleasure and happiness and just sit in a corner and meditate. And that's what your life is to be. I mean, is that what the Bible would say? Is that what God would want? You know, stop worrying. Don't worry about pleasure and happiness. Just be miserable. That's godly. Miserableness is godliness. Some people think that. Some people think that, uh, you know, you know just God's not about happiness. But I don't think you have to look far into the Bible to see that that's not true. You don't have to look far into the Bible to see that God enjoys giving good gifts to people. You don't have to look far into the Bible to see that, you know, when God created just in the beginning, it says he created a beautiful garden with beautiful things to look at. You know, he created things that will be pleasurable. And God created you and me to enjoy and to, and to experience pleasure. So it's not that God in the Bible is against pleasure. In fact, all you have to do is do a quick Google search of joy in the Bible, and you might be shocked how many references there are to joy throughout the Bible. I think God is very concerned about joy. The problem becomes is that the lie in this world that we've been told and that many of us live our lives believing is that if a little joy is good, a little happiness is good, if some happiness is good, then more is better and more is better and more is better and the end goal is just getting as much as you can get. And that's what we live our lives for. And if this world, like we said last week, 
If the whole story is just what we see under the sun of our solar system, then that is the end of the story. If there's nothing more outside of our world, then I would say go for it. Don't deny yourself any pleasure, just like the writer of Ecclesiastes. Get all you can. Avoid as much pain as you can and gain as much pleasure as you can because this 50, 60, 70, 80 years is all you got and make them as fun as you can. But if there's something outside of this world, if there is life outside of the life that we live under the sun, then that changes things. That changes things dramatically. You and I have this desire within us for pleasure, but it is not fulfilled in the things of this world. That's what Tom Brady's saying. That's what Cameron Russell's saying. That's what Ernest Hemingway's saying. That's what God is saying in the book of Ecclesiastes. You have this desire for pleasure, and I believe it's from God. But the things of this world just won't satisfy it. And so C.S. Lewis comes at it this way, right? 20th century writer, theologian. He comes at it this way. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. And he gives a number of other examples of desires and, and what meets those desires. Then he says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is, look, yeah, you've got this desire for pleasure, and it's good, and it's from God, but the desire for pleasure is not to seek pleasure as an end to itself. Not to seek pleasure as the fulfillment and meaning, but to seek God and along the way you will experience pleasure. See, the problem is we have disconnected pleasure from anything not in this world. We have said the only pleasure and happiness you can experience is if you can see it, taste it, touch it, hear it, feel it. That's it. That's the only pleasure you can experience. And so if that's it, if that's life under the sun, you know, then go for it. But if there's more than that, then I think you can experience a pleasure beyond this world. In fact, I put it this way. Your pleasure is only limited by where your treasure is. Your pleasure is limited by where your treasure is, or said another way, the place of your treasure will determine the limit of your pleasure. The place of your treasure will determine the limit of your pleasure. I know that sounds a little strange. Let me unpack it a little bit. But I believe wherever your treasure is, is going to determine how much value pleasure will have in your life. Let me, let me, give you, let me illustrate it this way. Maybe this will help. Uh, I love to play board games with my son. And um, so when he was younger, we played board games a lot. We've played board games a lot. And when he was younger, sometimes still now, but when he was younger, you, those of you who have kids will know this, the only way the game was fun for him was what? And he won. Right? The only game, the only way the game could be any fun is if he wins. And so, you know, I want the game to be fun for him. And I want to, when he was younger, he was happy, we'd be playing a game like Candyland. You ever play, how many play Candyland? Candyland is a cruel game. <laughs> Candyland is a cruel game. Because it all relies on the flip of the cards. Right? No matter how much I might even want him to win. Sometimes I'd be like hiding Queen Frostine and just like slip it in there. 
But you flip those cards and, you know, he gets stuck in like molasses swamp. And I'm like, oh, this is not going to end well for me, for him, for us, right? It's going to be disappointing. He's not going to be happy because the only way the game is fun for him is if he wins. You know why? Because that's where his treasure is in winning and in the game. So his pleasure is limited by winning the game. But not for me. Not for me. I can have fun whether he wins or I win. I can enjoy the game no matter who wins. I can enjoy the game if we never finish the game. Why? Because my treasure is spending time with my son. Because my treasure is just playing the game with him. My treasure is just being with him. And so my treasure is the relationship. And I don't care who wins the game. So when my treasure is that, it doesn't matter to me who wins the game. And so my pleasure is, is, is not determined by how the game turns out because that's not what my treasure is. And if your treasure is not determined by how the game turns out in this world, then you can experience pleasure in this world in a way that you never would have been able to otherwise. Because if your treasure is outside of this world... And you realize, look, it doesn't matter how this part of the game turns out because this is not the end game. This is not the end game. All of a sudden, something in this world that would have been painful and you would have avoided, you can accept from God through His grace and even thank Him in the midst of it because this world's not the end game. And so if I experience disappointment and I experience pain and I experience, but I feel like this is what God has for me right now and God's taken me through this, I can say, you know what? This isn't the end game. And I can walk through this with joy. And I don't have to pursue every pleasure that puts itself in front of my face because this isn't the end game. Let me give you some scripture to back this up of why, where, where I think, where I'm getting this from and where I think um, this is talked about in scripture. There's a time where um, a rich, the Bible says a rich young man or some translations say a rich young ruler came to Jesus. Just think about those three words. Rich, young, ruler comes to Jesus, right? Money, youth, and power. That's what this guy's got. And that's what many people are chasing in life. Rich, young ruler, money, youth, and power. And he comes to Jesus and he says, look, I've got all this stuff. I've got everything under the sun. I've got it all. But I want something more. I want eternal life. Jesus, I think you can tell me how to get it. How do I get it? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad. Say that word with me. Sad. Say it again. Sad. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And he wasn't willing to make the trade. Wasn't willing to do it. See, his pleasure had a limit and it involved this world. And if he was to give up the things of this world that were given him pleasure, he said, I can't do it. So he went away sad. Contrast that to a story Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13, treasure in the field. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, say that word, 
joy, say it like you mean it, joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Same trade-off. Same trade-off. Give everything you have to get what you cannot buy. Give up the pleasures of this world to gain the pleasure of the next world. Same trade-off. One went away sad. He wasn't willing to do it. The other, with joy, sold everything he had because he knew that the end game, the treasure outside of this life under the sun, the treasure outside of this world, that the treasure of God and the sun, S-O-N, was worth much more than the life under the sun, S-U-N. And he said, I will joyfully sell everything I have for that. See, the place of your treasure is going to limit your pleasure. And if your treasure is in this world, I'm just, you're going to hit a ceiling at some point. You're going to get to that ceiling and say, is this all there is? Because I thought it was going to bring meaning and purpose, and it doesn't. But if your treasure is outside this world, then whatever comes your way, you can say, I can receive it. One final example from Scripture, and it's Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, let's say that again, joy set before him endured the cross. Joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not go weary and lose heart. Joy, cross. Joy, cross. They don't make sense in the same sentence unless there's something outside of this world. It's the same reason why a sports figure who says a statement after the game and talks about the fact that this game isn't that important, but it's really about his faith in Jesus Christ and the world says, what? It doesn't make any sense. Joy, cross. It's the same reason why people will look at a woman like Kylie Basuti and say, you're walking away from all of this, everything you work for, everything people would, you know, give up, people would give their lives for, you're walking away from it. It doesn't make sense. Joy, cross. It doesn't make sense. It's the same reason why someone look at Tim Tebow and he could say, look, I'm, I'm where God wants me and whatever God wants me to do, I'm going to do it and I'll serve in Haiti. And people say, what? That doesn't make sense. Unless there's something outside of this world, unless your pleasure and your treasure are in heaven, because then for the joy set before you, for Jesus, what was it? The joy of pleasing and being obedient to his father, the joy of doing what God, his father had sent him to do, the joy of achieving the reconciliation of humanity with God the father. For that joy, he would endure the cross. But what is it for you? Insert your name. For the joy set before, insert your name here, she endured, he endured for that joy. Because when your ultimate treasure is outside of this world, you can enjoy and receive as a gift from God whatever may come. And you say, my father, my father, my father is my treasure. 
It's like Jesus, when he comes to the, when he's in the garden and Judas comes to betray him. What does Jesus do? You know, Peter goes to cut off his ear. The guard's ear. And Jesus says, no, put your sword away. This is the cup my father has for me. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And a cup's going to come your way at times. And it'll be a cup of disappointment. It'll be a cup of something you didn't expect. It'll be a cup of failure or a cup of a lost dream or a cup of a lost job or a lost relationship or a lost loved one too soon. And that cup will come. And if it's only about this world, I don't have any answer for how you handle it. I don't. Because if it's only about this world, my only advice is have as much fun as you can and avoid as much pain as you can. But if it's about a treasure outside of this world, it's just about living for God, which I believe it is, then you can endure anything that comes your way and receive it from your Father and walk through it because this isn't the end game. People, you might die if you're following Christ, you've already died. You've already given your life for whatever God has called you to. You've already died to yourself. They can't take anything away from you. It's not about the pleasures of this world. So when we have that perspective, here's what changes. All those things that the writer of Ecclesiastes mentioned in the beginning, I just received them as a gift along the journey. Laughter, work, Wine, if that's your thing, in moderation. All these things are just a gift from God, right? And say, I receive them as a gift from my Father. And they're not the end game. I don't live for them. I don't live for them. I'm not seeking meaning from them. I've already received meaning and purpose from my Father. What are, we, what are you sacrificing on the altar of happiness? I guess that's the end of really what this comes down to. Because this society would say, the altar of happiness, everything is worth sacrificing so you can be happy. I guess the question for us is, are we sacrificing things on the altar of happiness? You say, well, I wouldn't do that. I think we're often tempted to. I met this great guy and, and, and I love him and he's great and we're going to get married. Great, where does he go to church? Well, he doesn't really go to church. He's not really a Christian. He's not really into that. But he makes me happy and I make him happy. What about that part about being unequally yoked in the scripture? Well, he makes me happy. I met this girl and, and, and we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we're, we're dating and we're going to move in together. Oh, what about that part about not being intimate before marriage and keeping yourself pure. Well, they, this is what's going to make him happy. This is what's going to make her happy. It's going to make us happy. What are the things we sacrifice on the altar of happiness? Well, I'm going to take this great job. It's going to take me away from my family and my friends. And, and, and have you talked and prayed to God about it? No, but it's a great opportunity. It's really going to make me happy. What do we sacrifice on the altar of happiness, the pleasures of this world? 
It's not just life under the sun. It's life with Christ. I'll leave you with this final scripture from Revelation chapter 21. I started this message saying, let's listen to someone who's been there before. Let me finish it the same way. Let's listen to someone who's been there before. The apostle John, God gave him a glimpse into heaven. And when that glimpse and what he recorded, he said this, this is what heaven will be like. This is where we're going. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe, here's pleasure, here's real pleasure. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. There's the view of the future. There's the pleasure we're going towards. And that's the view of someone who's been there. And you say, that's where my treasure is. So anything that comes this way in my world, I receive it from my Father. And so how do you know whether you are living for the pleasures of this world or the pleasures of the next world? Easy. Can you say no to things that might bring you temporary pleasure? And can you say yes to things that might bring you temporary pain if you know that it is the will of God for your life? That's how you know. Because there's going to be things that will come your way and they'll say, you know what? This is going to cause temporary pain. Whether it's a financial decision, whether it's a relational decision, it's, gonna, it's not going to be immediately bring pleasure to my life. It's going to cause me some pain, but God, I know this is what God has for me. And if you can say yes to that, then your treasure is someplace else than in this world. And if when pleasures come your way and come across your path, you know that this would be fun. And you know this would feel good for a little while. But you also know that in the morning or a little bit down the road, it's not going to feel fun and you know it's not what God has for you. When you can say no to those things, I believe you know that your treasure is not in this world. When you can say no to things that might bring you temporary pleasure but you know aren't from God and when you can say yes to things that might bring you temporary pain but you know it's God's plan, then your treasure is outside of this world. And so your pleasure is only limited by where your treasure is. And I believe God has great blessings for you as you walk this walk following him. But I also believe you're going to miss a lot of them if your end game is the pleasure of the blessing. If your end game is the gift and not the giver, then I think we're going to miss a lot of the pleasures that God would have for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the wisdom that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord. God written so many years ago, but so little has changed in the hearts of men and women because we still try and pursue this road. We still try and think that we can find meaning and purpose. We still think that if we just do this one new thing, that it's going to bring meaning and purpose to our life, even though we know that time and time again, it comes up empty. So Lord, I ask, us, I ask you this morning to help us. Father, help us to examine our own hearts because too often we're like a fish in water. We don't even realize the environment around us. And too often we have just accepted the lie that it's about this world and that happy, our happiness is what it's all about. And so Lord, I ask that you would help us to examine our hearts. Lord, and take the wisdom 
of the writer of Ecclesiastes and make sure that our treasure is in heaven, that our treasure is with you, that we would not walk away sad like that rich young ruler, but we would with joy, with open hands, say, God, it's all yours, and you are our treasure, God. And so we receive every other pleasure as a gift from you. And we can receive it with thankfulness. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I ask that you guide us into helping us to understand. We live in a world, God, we just live in a world that as soon as we walk out these doors and before we walk out these doors, we're going to be bombarded with advertisements and emails things that say it's all about you, it's all about your happiness, it's all about you. Lord, we are bombarded with that. God, as your church, as your people, God, would you help us in the midst of that to make sure we live with our treasure in heaven and not focused on the things of this earth. We ask for that strength in Jesus' name.